Hey everyone, welcome to the Eater Upsell, a part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am one of your hosts, Greg Morabito, and with me as always is your other host, Helen Rosner. Hi. This is a show where we talk to, sometimes we talk to people who are in the food world, sometimes we talk to people outside of the food world, but we do usually end up talking about food. Yeah. And you know, everybody in the food world and a a lot of people outside of the food world in the last week have been talking about one person in particular. And that person is Sean Brock, the chef behind Husk in Nashville and in Charleston and behind McCready's and a whole bunch of other restaurants and basically the bourbon and pork king of America was the subject of a huge profile in the New York Times last week in which he, among other things, admitted that he is now sober and he went to rehab and he's now focusing on wellness. This is kind of like a nuclear bomb to drop on the world of bourbon. I feel like one of the first things you learn about Sean Brock or the old Sean Brock was that, you know, he was, you know, like to have a good time. Uh, like to sit on a bar stool, drink a Budweiser with a shot of Jaeger and just kind of, you know, be a cool, cool guy and and sh- and shoot the breeze and, and maybe actually developed a reputation for kind of living a hard life. Brock was really one of the chefs who helped establish the trope of the hard living, hard drinking guy behind the scenes. And over the last couple of years, he's been moving away from that a little bit. He was profiled in GQ last year in which it came out that he has been suffering for years with an autoimmune disorder that's been affecting his eyes. And that, among other things, led him towards a healthier path. I think that the end goal of sobriety, just not drinking entirely and addressing alcohol as a problem, is a thing that is often an undercurrent in the food world. It's a thing that a lot of cooks and servers and writers and sommeliers and people who live within this universe where what we consume and drink is considered pleasure don't always grapple with the idea that it can be a problem. So for Brock to come out in such a public way about such a big thing had a really huge effect on our industry and on the conversation that we're all having all the time about what it means to be part of the food world. It must be hard. I mean, I just I can't even understand what that's like, um, you know, when you kind of have to let go of that and completely reshift your your focus there. So um, but he's being very open and candid about this whole experience. And actually, Greg, that's a perfect segue because of Shortly before this New York Times story dropped, he joined us in the Eater Upsell studio and we talked with him about where he came from, where he's at now, the fact that he spends, and this is not a joke, three hours a day dedicated to self-care and the way he's redesigned McCready's, which is his flagship tasting menu restaurant in Charleston, to reflect a tasting menu experience that is more in line with the life that he wants to be living now. This is a pretty intense conversation with a pretty intense guy. Yeah. And before we get to our chat with Sean Brock, I just wanted to remind you all that uh, if you are a fan of what you hear on this podcast, Helen and I would absolutely love it if uh, you would give us a rating on iTunes and, uh, you know, maybe write a review if, if you're so inclined. And if you are excited to hear this podcast and you really like what, you know, we're talking about and the people that we're talking to, we'd be super grateful if you could also subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you you choose to listen to it on. Uh, your podcast subscriptions and ratings are what keeps the lights on. It keeps bringing exciting people into the studio here. And uh, Helen and I are super grateful. On a recent episode, we actually asked you guys to write in with some of your favorite examples of weird bad or hilarious restaurant PR. And we've already heard from a couple of you. We will be doing dramatic readings on an upcoming episode. It's not too late. Send us your favorite restaurant copy that you'd like to hear me and Greg dramatically read to (laughs) upsell at eater.com. 
Okay, in a radical shift of tone, let's talk with Sean Brock. When you travel, are you like, I'm going to go and try new places, or you're like, I got to go revisit favorite places, or do you have any like rules about that kind of stuff, like you're sort of eating with a plan as a chef? Yeah, I usually kind of chase my passions or my personality, so I'll do lots of soul food kind of stuff, real honest um, cooking, and then whoever's serving the biggest tasting menu, you know, and the most exciting tasting menu. I'm just, for as long as I can remember, I've I've loved that way of dining. And I think it's really important to support it. I feel like there has been sort of broadly speaking in the industry a moment of tasting menu backlash, which is an interesting time for you to have just done a massive revamp of your lauded tasting menu restaurant, McCready's. Yeah, I just, I felt my um, stomach move when you said that, the backlash (laughs) of tasting menus, because it drives me completely insane, because the the level of artistry, um, technique, care for the guest experience, the level of talent, the level of um, drive that it takes to produce a meal like that every day, is really, really hard, and most people can't achieve that. So they make shareable plates with sloppy food all over them and say it's the trend. Interesting. <laughs> Controversial take. I like this. We're right out the gate, and you're already just, like, casting yeah. extreme shade on 95% of your fellow No, I, chefs. Love, I love those kind of things. I, lo- <laughs> I love to, to share and have fun, but we have to... We have to have all of it. We have to have both. We have to support it all. And I feel like people are just not not in it like they used to be. And it's a shame because that's that, that used to be all we had, you know. You came to New York and you ate at the big three, you know, or the big four. And that, and you had to. There was no question. Wait, so which are the, what are the big three or possibly four? Per se, Jean-Georges, Danielle, and Le Bernardin. That seems fair. Yeah, but you know, it all changed. We had we had David Chang on the show recently and I feel like, you know, he's the he might argue that he is the instrument of change, but certainly from an outside perspective, he is the locus of where all of that kind of started to shift. Yeah, no, I think it's amazing because it gives opportunities to people who wouldn't have been able to share their vision, but we still have to support that level of dining. It's so important. So is it important? I mean, obviously, it's a specific kind of expression as a chef, but do you think that we need to support it because there's like you need to further innovation or like why like why is that important in the ecosystem overall? Yeah, that level of dining in that way of thinking is is critical to um, to happiness, I think, and joy, because when you're in someone's hands for a couple of hours and you're not having to make any decisions and you're there to relax and um, get away from life for a little while and just escape into this world of, of, of relaxation and deliciousness and connection because that's what we want. Like we, we, we want to take that time we have with you and just allow you to appreciate this moment and kind of get away and, and use it as like 
therapy or going to the spa. No, that's I think we we need that. Um, but there's also as a craftsman the precision that's involved in the service, the entire experience is, I mean, I enjoy pushing myself to try and do better every day. And that's, that provides that opportunity for me. You mentioned relaxing, which to me doesn't seem like an obvious word necessarily to describe the tasting menu experience. (laughs) We were chatting right before we came into the studio and you were telling me that this sort of revamp of McCready's is driven by this idea that you want people to have a relaxed experience. I think of, I mean, you know, I I have probably eaten at more tasting menu restaurants than the average bear, but I still find them fairly stressful. Yeah. So this experience, I wanted it to be the anti-tasting menu. I wanted it to be the opposite of everyone's perception of what a tasting menu is and feels like, because obviously People aren't that interested in that in the way that style of dining makes them feel or costs or whatever. Um, so I made a list of everything that kind of drives me nuts or even irks me a little bit about a long menu like that and vowed not to do any of those things. I mean, I wrote it down on paper. I shared it with the team. What was on the list? Sitting for three hours, um, too much talking from the server, you know, too, just... Um, too too much information, too much stuff, like just um, too trying too hard, like too much theater. Um, my idea is for you to kind of get lost and trust us, and uh, the meal is only two hours, so that allows us. We stick to two hours. It's, it's, it's never been over two hours. And that allows us to say, okay, we have 120 minutes of your time. And I go through and I choreograph every single minute. And I can make you feel a certain way when you walk in. I can make you feel a certain way at some point in the meal. I can make you laugh. I can make you excited. I can make you nervous. Um, hit all those emotions at very specific times because it's all choreographed. And to me, it's my idea of a perfect dining experience as a guest. So I sit down and this is what I would prefer. This How do you make I, someone laugh in, during it? Like, like what is that element? I, you know, humor is very big for me, but um, just the element of surprise, the element of um, I didn't see that coming or the element of you got to be kidding me. <laughs> Or the element of, did you read my mind? Um, You know, I I pay very close attention to uh, emotions that a dining experience can evoke throughout the the evening. But that's, you know, not apparent when you're sitting there. You have no idea that we've taken so much time to look at every single minute because we really want you to have this very specific... um, meal where you leave and you feel like you just had a massage at the most beautiful, tranquil spa and you feel light and you feel like refreshed and relieved and, and happy. 
That sounds so. I feel calm just thinking. About yeah, it. I know. We need that as like a sort of an app. I, where I you're just feel both of us just kind menu. of like going yeah, so, into the soothing place of like. And that's what I preach to the team. I'm like, this is an anti-stress thing. Like, our job is to take stress away from people for two hours. We are all way too stressed out. Let's take two hours and try and get rid of as much stress, and then be in the moment, be present, enjoy that period of time before you have to go back in to reality. So how's this different from what McCready's used to be? So McCready's was always catering to two different clientele. The the guest who doesn't want 15 dishes, who just wants a really delicious, craveable meal, and then we would do 12 to 15 course tasting menus. So in the kitchen, it was just complete chaos. You know, you have 25% of the guests doing the tasting menu, the rest ordering steaks all different temperatures, and it just wasn't fun. <laughs> and now we have those separated, and, we're al- and, and that allows us to focus so much more on the two different experiences and therefore create a much better experience for the guests but also the team. So it's interesting that you're so dedicated to the, the tasting menu in part also because Husk, which has two locations right now, right? Nashville and Charleston with two more on the way, is exactly that kind of shared plate thing yeah. you were saying mean things about a few minutes earlier. <laughs> 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 Do you just hate yourself every time you remember Husk exists? No, <laughs> hell no. So the idea of the idea of Husk is we want to reach as many people as possible. That's how it started. It's like if the, if the ethos of this restaurant is Southern food is the best food on the planet, we have to make it accessible to everyone. So we put together a lot of rules. We don't have a bottle of wine over $100. Um, it's food that tells a story. And so the more people we can get in there, the more people can hear these stories of, of different regions of the South and different time periods and um, different ingredients and old um, antique recipes. And to me, that's really, really awesome. <laughs> that's a bold claim. Southern food is the best food on oh, the planet. I'm, I'm 100% positive that that is the truth. And that's the beauty of life. That's my truth. That's it's my reality. Truth. That's my perspective. And that's what I that's what I fight for. What's the second best food on the planet? <laughs> Japanese. <laughs> okay. What's three? <laughs> three. Hmm. French. All right. For Italian. So you've clearly ranked all the different uh, cuisines of the world <laughs> somewhere <laughs> in your brain there, right? Yeah. Thereabouts. Well, that's a, that's an amazing top four. I mean, it almost sounds like what you're talking about with McCready's and uh, the tasting counter and like I saw like a photo of it, the way it's um, arranged in that counter, uh, it kind of almost looks like an omakase or something. Is there any sort of Japanese influence there is that is your number two favorite you know seeping in there at least in maybe in in practice if not in the food yeah I mean you take one look at my Instagram account and it's basically a scrapbook of my trips to Japan I'm just obsessed with everything about Japan and uh, there's a very specific emotion linked to going into a place with seven seats and two employees, and that connection for that moment with those people and their passion and the way you feel. And I think that's 
what I'll always be chasing. And McCready's allows that. I, I never thought that I would ever have this opportunity. It's an opportunity that I've been dreaming of since, you know, 2003. And to see it become a reality, to walk into that room and feel that connection with the team and with the guests and just see everybody really, really, really happy for two hours is one of the greatest feelings. And, and to have people say, I feel like relaxed. I feel like calmer than I did. I feel, I feel better. I feel refreshed. That's incredible if we can give that gift to someone. You know, as someone who spent a lot of time in New York and um, I think I first learned about all your work about Husk. And I feel like Husk has become the thing that you've been sort of synonymous for outside of the South. And that's the restaurant. Do you feel that that Husk kind of overshadowed McCready's? And is that any inspiration as to why you wanted to go in and revamp it and make it this singular experience there? Well, we're so lucky and so thankful and so grateful that people are interested in Southern food and Southern culture. It's it's really amazing what's happened over the last uh, four, five, six years. It's something that should have happened a long time ago, in my opinion, obviously. Um, what do you think changed? The work of the Carolina uh, Rice Foundation, the Carolina Gold Rice Foundation, brought back the flavor brought back the deliciousness, brought back the story, that connection. And we are able to cook simple food with these explosive flavors and change people's mind about Southern food. And I think people these days love a story. They love imagining different times. They love uh, hearing about the importance of saving a an animal breed, and being a part of supporting that by buying it. That's, I think people just love that. But also for Southerners, it's an enormous uh, opportunity for nostalgia to take you back to your grandmother's kitchen, to take you back to, you know, those communal dinners um, the, in the, within the community, just, you know, covered dishes. And that's a very cool thing to tap into. It's interesting, that idea about craving nostalgia. I mean, I think it can take many different forms. I don't think about that very often. But, like, um, I mean, I know that on your on your menus, you know, innovation and, and sort of playing around and, and trying new things is very important. But, like, there is some there are some things you can't take off the menu, and some of those seem like kind of nostalgia things, like cornbread or fried chicken or your famous burger, you know. Um, I'm just kind of curious, like, how do you put together the menus and – do you think that, you know, do you know that X amount is always going to change and X amount is always going to stay the same? Yeah, we, I mean, I give 100% creative freedom to the chefs of, of the individual husk. I'm not standing over them doing anything. Like they've worked with me long enough to operate that restaurant with my vision and do it better than I, I could which is freaking awesome, which is amazing. And you have to play to the crowd a little bit. You have to have those things on the menu because I like putting myself in the diner's shoes. And if I flew from New York to Charleston and the burger wasn't on the menu and I'd been dreaming about it for a week, I'd be so pissed off. 
And we don't want people to be angry. We want people to be happy. And as you get older, or at least as I've gotten older, I care a lot more about being in the other person's shoes. And that really influences a lot of your decision-making. Was there a moment that you realized that you cared about the other person's shoes? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, um, we, as chefs, we are oftentimes stuck back in the kitchen with no relationship to the guests. And when we built Husk in 2010 with an open kitchen, my expo station was basically in the dining room. And once you start listening to people, once you start sharing stories, once you start listening to feedback, you realize how important that is. And you realize how disconnected you've been hiding in that in that kitchen in the back. And so when it's in front of your face like that, when when you you see it and you feel it and you see the honesty, that's that's when it hits you. So what techniques have you developed to keep people happy or to like manipulate their emotions at McCready's? Have you are, are, teach us your ways? Hmm. So McCready's to me is the answer to a question that's been floating around in my head will always be up there wandering around. And that's what does Southern food taste like today? Not tomorrow, not yesterday. What does it taste like today? And that's a really amazing thing to think about because cultural influences change, ingredients change, weather changes, people's tastes change. You know, there's there's so many different factors. And we have an opportunity to say, all right, we can cook whatever we want. No one gets a choice. We don't have any rules. So we, we become collectors at that point. We collect the most beautiful products within arm's length. And then we take all of the things that we've learned um, over the years in modern cooking and um, old-fashioned cooking and um, put it together in a minimalistic way so that you're tasting things without too many distractions because the, the room itself feels a very specific way. The music is very, very, very important. Um, there's a specific way the music makes you feel. And, like, when I'm in there, I'm, like, DJing and, like, turning the music up and down based on how the room feels. And the same thing with the air conditioner and the lighting. You know, there's so much more to that experience to keep you kind of captivated and entertained and connected. And that's just really fun. Sounds like a holistic theatrical experience. Yes. Just full (laughs) multi-sensory manipulation. Yeah, and you want to have that uh, anticipation of what the guest kind of wants. We do a dish where we purposely put a shitload of this incredibly delicious um, beef sauce on the plate. And you eat the last piece of meat and the last garnish, and there's all this sauce on the plate, and it's so freaking good. It's like 
so like you're just craving it and you're staring at it and right there it is and then at that moment a server sits down a warm piece of grilled bread and tells you to sop that shit up oh my god <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> you know it's 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 being in that seat and saying i'm i'm going to eat this meal 10 times and i'm going to write down everything that I wish would have happened. <laughs> it sounds like Groundhog Day, like this sort of not not the horrible parts where he's like driving a car off a cliff, but like he realizes by the end that you know he has to be standing under this tree at this exact minute to catch the kid who's going to fall out of the tree, yeah. and like step past this woman and like help her not trip down the stairs, and it's like you get it totally orchestrated and you anticipate every breath. And what a cool yeah. opportunity to be able to do that in a restaurant. Yeah. It sounds very dialed in. Like, do you have a map somewhere of every <laughs> minute of this? Yeah, I, I basically broke it up into five-minute segments. What if someone gets up to go to the bathroom? I'm very serious. I, Whenever I get up to go to the bathroom in the middle of a tasting menu, I feel like I'm ruining it. No, it's no big deal. We're, we're right there. We watch you go to the bathroom. <laughs> no. know, the kitchen's right beside the bathroom, so we, we, we hold your food for you and then make sure that we time it perfectly when you sit down, then that food is still at that perfect moment that we chase because the Japanese inspiration is doing things all the minute because ingredients and products have, I believe, about a five-minute span, lifespan, where they are the most vibrant, the most alive, the most delicious. And every ingredient we work with, we try and find that moment so that the so that the guest gets to experience that three to five minute period because we always get to experience that in the kitchen because we know but if you've got a 12 top and 12 different dishes and you're at the other side of the restaurant you're going to miss that it's going to be amazing but you're going to miss a really special moment that exists in each ingredient what the hell am I talking about? No, that, that's, that's <laughs> very heavy. I have We're never totally thought about you. that. Yeah, Don't get me going. Uh, <laughs> I, we clearly already I have. I sound like a hippie. <laughs> well, okay, so let's shift gears pretty dramatically because I have a burning question about husk that is actually a frequent topic of conversation around the metaphorical eater water cooler. <clears> and <throat> I wonder, I would be surprised if this is not something you've thought about before. So husk has two locations currently, one in Nashville and one in Charleston, and you're about to open one in Greenville, South Carolina, and then you're going to open one in Savannah, Georgia. At what point does Husk become a chain? Yeah, see, this is what's cool about it. And this is why we do it, and this is what's fascinating about it. Because each restaurant is dedicated to studying and celebrating a specific region. So the art will be different. The vibe will be different. The music will be different the food will certainly be different. And that is an opportunity to show how insanely diverse Southern food is. I mean, if you look at Southern food, or if you look at the South on a map, you'll quickly see it's the size of Italy. And then if you start breaking down the micro regions, you could study it for your entire life. And unfortunately, a lot of people know the South is one thing and Southern food is one thing, one cuisine. And multiple husks not only allows me to explore new regions for the rest of my life, which is a goal, and to understand them and to cook that food, but it's so cool for the community because it's singular. It's 
of that place in that moment. And that becomes uh, this this sense of pride, like our husk is better than yours, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So potentially you could keep going and just turn it into like, you know, the, a locavorish chain of like, could be like the Neo Waffle House, which I know you love. (laughs) Regional culinary anthropology. Here's the thing. Well, why call them all husk? Um, Because husk is a theory. Husk is a belief system. Husk is a vision. Husk is the idea of showing everyone else what we get to experience every day as Southerners and the joy that we get in watching other people freak out when they taste Bob Wood's ham for the first time or um, a pawpaw or any of those things or Carolina gold rice. I mean, that's just so cool. And one of the really great things about expansion is watching employees go from the bottom working their way up to running a restaurant that's really really difficult to operate on a daily basis we could not make it more difficult to operate a restaurant we only use products from the south the menu changes twice a day that's reckless thinking you know (laughs) But that's what it takes to, to say this is what Greenville tastes like right now. So how do you do it? I mean, do, do you pers- – like it, this feels like a massive academic and anthropological undertaking to go into a place and actually figure out not just what makes this place tick but what makes it tick in a way that is distinct from other places. How cool is that? I mean that's just like Indiana Jones shit, you know. Yeah. But that's so amazing. And um, it's hard. It takes a, you have to connect with professors and you have to connect with scientists and you have to dig through old newspapers and you have to buy piles of spiral-bound church and community cookbooks and you've got to do your homework. It sounds like journalism. Yeah, <laughs> really good journalism. <laughs> so there is a process with every new husk of digging into to that city and digging into the past there. Is that like how, how it's been? Yeah, it's an opportunity to tell a story, to keep the conversation alive, the conversation about um, a region's people, people like just everything that makes up a culture, a region. You know, that's just really amazing. And it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, like a, you can step back and see like, whoa, that's what it tastes like. That's what it feels like. That's what it sounds like. That's what it looks like to be in that place at that moment, you know. And then if you could time transport to all the different husks, it would feel completely different. I mean, if you look at the difference between Charleston and Nashville, it doesn't even look like the same restaurant. So will you ever bring husk out of the South? I, you know, I would love to, but... The cost of flying all the southern products would well, would diminish their deliciousness, but also cost a fortune. What if you did like husk theory, but in Minnesota yeah, or that would be fun in as Idaho? Yeah, maybe husk doesn't have to just be the South. Maybe it's a sense of place. 
Okay, now we're cooking. I like where this is going. Yeah. Oh, dear. I'm tired enough as it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I have a, a mystery question that I want to ask you about, which is, so you were you were recently at the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival and your skillet was stolen. <laughs> I read I read a line, like a throwaway line about this on Eater Atlanta, and I was like immediately riveted by the mystery of the missing skillet. Like my Nancy Drew sort of <laughs> alter identity snapped into place. Did you, what happened? Your skillet, like this feels major. Your cast iron skillet, it, at least in like a personal brand kind of way, feels fairly essential to who you are. Yeah, it was really terrible. And um, I, I wish I could find the freaking video footage so I could expose <laughs> that do savage. Know, do you human. know who it was? No, hell no. I wish I did because you can't steal another man's cast iron pan. I mean, that's How long just have you had the pan? About three hours. Oh. <laughs> but still, here's it, it, it has this incredible story because it's from um, – this guy named Dennis who has start who like created this amazing company based on his passion for his grandmother's cast iron pan, and he did hundreds of thousands of dollars in research to create a very specific feel of this cast iron. And I've just been blown away by it. And he personally brought it to me to give to me, and we sat and talked about cast iron for an hour in the future of cast iron and I and I was on my way out the door so I carried that pan to dinner and like I'm like running around holding this pan the whole time so I was already growing attached to it and bonding with it and then it disappeared wow okay so, so that's why I put something on Twitter it's like you know you should be you never even got to really get to know it yeah that motherfucker sounds like stole it. your cast iron <laughs> there's another one it. in the mail though that's, That's a bummer. so. So he's he's trying to sort of recreate like the Griswold cast iron. Exactly, kinda. exactly, exactly. And it's the it's the most amazing thing I've seen in a long, long, long time. And to me, it's like that's a legacy. That's like taking Southern culture and making it last for hundreds of years. How cool is that? So for our listeners who might not be cast iron skillet nerds, um, do you want to explain why cast iron from what is it nineteen thirty six or earlier is the best? Yeah, so there's various blends and, like, recipes that go into making cast iron. And, of course, now we're making them um, lesser quality. And the best ones are the ones that are the mo- that are used the most. Like, I have my great-grandmother's cast iron pan, which is just completely insane to think about. And that pan's nurtured and nourished a lot of people and you there's a million cast iron products on the market now and they're just made quickly and without that attention to detail that existed back then you know everything that was made during that time period was just better than anything that's made today except for telephones (laughs) (laughs) god bless the iphone (laughs) yeah the the legend that i heard i don't know legend is that it was that the alloy had to change because of the war. And so suddenly, like, World War II was looming and you couldn't get the right—I don't even know how it works. But I, I I, recently spent a fairly obscene amount of money buying an old Griswold cast iron skillet. Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing. Yeah, it's a very specific recipe based on the materials that were available at that time and abundant. And they just happen to be the best for that um, use. So these skillets— his company is Butterpat, right? Exactly. Butterpat 
skillets. He's making ones that are just as good as the hundred. Oh my god, I think they're better. And like, some asshole stole your the, skillet. The, the pan, I like. I was. I couldn't stop like rubbing my fingers on it and like making other people touch it. <laughs> it was <Wow>. so beautiful. <laughs> So you've got some husks, you've got some Moneros, you've got a McCrady's Tavern and a tasting menu part of McCrady's. A lot of your contemporaries who also have tasting menu restaurants and nice restaurants are now branching out into like fast casual things and like food brands, like, you know, store products. Is that anywhere in your future? Would you ever consider anything like that? Sean Brock pasta sauce. <laughs> Sean wish. Brock cast iron or I don't know (laughs) that's a dream of mine I mean imagine how cool it would be to have your name on a cast iron pan that lasts 150 years yeah that's freaking cool and that's a goal of mine but I would like to say that I think um ahead but I don't I mean I haven't I just try to get through a day (laughs) and do the best (laughs) I can um I try not to future trip too much future trip I like that word (laughs) yeah that's a good one how is cool. uh how's cookbook number two coming along? Or book number two, I should say. It's more than a cookbook. Book oh, it's so was. exciting. Um I'm here. You don't actually sound excited. I just want to No, that no, out. no. It's it's been such a project. <laughs> and I'm here this week um just to hole up in a hotel and just finish it and finish um uh all the writing, you know, all the foods complete and there's just so many amazing stories to tell. Because this is it, you know, like this is my chance to explain my theory of southern food being the best food on the planet. So it's a, it's a lot of pressure, but it's just a book about celebrating tradition and producers. That's it. And uh, hopefully what the future will hold for that cuisine if we continue celebrating it the way that we're celebrating it. So it's re- I mean, this book is going to be... It's going to be really, really cool, and it's going to be something that I hope to be very, very proud of. Is it the Husk? What's it? It's the Husk book? Is that the yeah. the title? Husk something. I don't know. The Husk, <laughs> the husk book. A grand Unified Theory of Husk. Yeah. <laughs> husk colon. Southern food is the best food in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually pretty good. I mean, that, that works. Or I, why that Southern food is the best yeah. food in the world. I don't world. even need to say why. Just, like, go f- Full throttle, just yep. say it and be like, if you'd like to know why, it's implied that you could open the cover, but honestly, the cover <laughs> should speak for itself. It's true. I believe, believe it all. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like your first cookbook was, uh, along with a few other releases over the last few years, kind of changed people's ideas about, you know, what food books should be like in terms of the organization, the aesthetics, the stories, the kind of writing in general. So I imagine this must be sort of a difficult second second album or whatever, you know, like just the expectation. That's what I would think. Like, oh, how am I going to how am I going to beat number one? You know, uh, yeah, like you again, again, I don't I don't I just don't think that way. I don't worry about those things. I just I do the best that I can and try to make the next best proper decision and hope for the best, you know, like you can't, if, if I start worrying about all that stuff, then I'm going to overthink it. I'm going to second guess my intuition and I'm going to make something that's not authentic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, authenticity has become a sort of toxic buzzword, but it is a really important idea. 
Yeah, I mean, my, my perspective on life these days is completely different than it was last year. And um, it's an incredible gift to be able to step back and really know what your role is and what your intentions are. That's really amazing. So what changed over the last year to change your perspective? I, um, as you can imagine, had uh, a lot going on. You know, I six restaurants, two on the way, battling an autoimmune disease that gave me double vision and caused my eyelids not to work um, anytime I would get stressed out or fatigued. So <laughs> as a chef... You're always stressed out and fatigued. And so this autoimmune disease, anytime your nervous system is dysregulated, it produces more antibodies, which attack your acetylcholine receptors, which doesn't allow your muscles to work. And um, it started going to my hands. It had been in my eyes. I had six eye surgeries over the last uh, year and a half. Um, went undiagnosed for a year and a half. And, I mean, it's a serious disease. If you don't take care of yourself, you, you're you not going to be around to preach the, the gospel of, of Southern food. Do you feel and, like you're taking care of yourself, like, as, as much as you should these days? Yeah. I uh, In January, I, I got to a point where I, I had to make some really big decisions and look at things from uh, a different reality. And that's, I want to be around for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized that I had broken myself trying to take care of everyone else first. And I put the oxygen mask on the person beside me before I put it on myself, knowing better, knowing better. And the second that I could define self-compassion for myself, everything changed. Everything changed. The whole world opened up. And when you can start taking care of yourself mentally and physically, the ripple effect that occurs is hard to put into words. It's extraordinary. It's beyond extraordinary to see how you changing your behavior affects other people's behavior, affects other people's happiness. And so each day, I do a lot of different things, um, about three hours of self-care each day to stay grounded, to stay centered, to stay chill, you know, to stay happy. And if you're happy, it all starts falling out of the sky. <laughs> you know, if, if, you're, if you're truly happy and you're experiencing joy, everything else just starts happening. And it, you don't even have to try. In terms of self-care, you mean like meditation, exercise? Yoga, just yeah. reflection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I have a very um, strict schedule each day that I try my best to stick to. Um, alarms set for different things, and I meditate at least twice a day. Sometimes I'll stop on the street and sit on a bench and meditate with my eyes closed. I don't care. You know, <laughs> like I'll. I was in the middle of a a video shoot the other day, and I was just feeling anxious and I just just I, I laid down right on the floor and started meditating and didn't say a word to anybody I don't I don't care you know like I'm I'm I've stopped worrying about those things like I I have experienced life in a new way and it's unbelievable but it's so much work 
It's so much work. You have to take care of yourself. And then you'll be amazed at how um, you're able to take care of the people that you love and the people that uh, are, are just in your daily life. It's it's really incredible. I do um, Reiki once a week, which is like, whew, that's everything. Like to discharge all that stuffed energy, it's like crazy. Um, I do EMDR and somatic experiencing once a week. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a parallel universe. Um, <laughs> it really <laughs> is. Like you go – you. You, EMDR is fascinating because it's a psychotherapy technique where you start to use different a part of your brain that's um, only accessible during REM. So it's like a dream world, and you can relive moments and change them and affect that neuropathway. And somatic experiencing is incredible. It's a way to uh, self-regulate your nervous system and traumas so that you're not stuffing, so that you lean into the discomfort that's in your chest and let it do its thing instead of looking at Instagram <laughs> or drinking a glass of whiskey or whatever you used to do to cope to bring your nervous system back into its e equilibrium. Um, My God, I, I, need, <laughs> I need these things. Well, it's, 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 it's really incredible. interesting to hear you say this is a lot of work. Because I think that any sort of self-preservation or self-care stuff, I mean, that's maybe that is why it's so hard to get to that place. Yeah, I do this like um, really cool thing every day called cranioelectrotherapy stimulation. And um, it's amazing. It, it, it allows you to adjust your brain waves depending on how you're feeling that day or how you want to feel that day. I mean, that's what a gift to give yourself, you know, and to, to say I'm, I'm going to spend two to three hours every day on me. <laughs> yeah. And when you come out of those moments, you're so freaking energized. You're so happy. You're so radiant. And, and it just, it makes a big difference on everybody else around you. And, and I've never felt more creative. Um, I've never felt more um, courageous. I've never had this sort of healthy confidence in cooking and entertaining and my vision and it's truly extraordinary. God, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I don't I mean, know where we can go from here. We no, have some questions just, um... about your underwear preferences for the lightning round. But <laughs> well, it's, you know, this is something that um I mean talking about like kind of mental health things, I feel like um it's like a new conversation I feel like people are having about rest the restaurant industry like in the last few years. It's so important though, right? Because yeah. It's weird that that self care and mental health are trendy at the moment. But, God, I hope that stays. But it, it's true. I mean, I feel like you know the conversations about wellness and exercise and eating. It's not just like eating healthy and exercising. I mean, at, at the Atlanta Food and Wine Festival that you were just at, there was sort of a concerted effort to create spaces for people who needed self care and yeah, Kat Kinsman's incredible site, Chefs with Issues, which is all about calling attention to mental health and, and mental well being in the food industry. Suddenly people That's are awesome. caring. Yeah, I mean when people see me now, they're like, What the happened to you? Like, why are you so freaking happy? <laughs> like you they think they think it's weird. They're like, This is weird. <laughs> this is really weird. And it throws people off. Like people don't know how to handle it. And that's really awesome because 
they will eventually say, I want that as well. I want to be that freaking happy. I want to be able to communicate functionally. <laughs> I, I want to be in the moment. And you can be. All you have to do is spend three hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Just take the time. And Acupuncture, yeah. you know, tons of therapy, tons of reading. Shut your damn phone off at 11 p.m. and don't pick it back up. You know, take care of yourself. Well, that's, I mean, you know, not to get too, like, uh, take one step back. It's really cool um, to hear you, a chef who I think a lot of people look up to, who's been on TV a bunch, who has cookbooks, talk about this kind of stuff because whether or not you think about it, I mean, you are like a role model, you know? Like, I'm sure there's a lot of young chefs up there, out there looking at, you know, Sean Brock and people like Sean Brock and saying, I want to be that guy, you know? If I can inspire someone to take better care of themselves or to have the courage to ask for help, that's like way bigger than a bowl of shrimp and grits, you know, like that's way bigger than the story of cornmeal. <laughs> you know, that that's, that's really, really important stuff. And what a gift, what, a, what an amazing opportunity to use uh, a platform that you worked your tail off and almost killed you to influence and inspire other people to chase happiness. Do you make any changes in your kitchens and how you run them, kind of thinking about this stuff? Yeah, so I'm working on a model. I'm working on a language. I'm working on um, a survival guide so that we can be vulnerable, we can feel safe, we can feel secure, we can communicate clearly and functionally without the other person becoming defensive ways to remove fear so that we're driven by happiness instead of being scared to do things and that's really amazing I mean us Nashville we meditate before service that's freaking incredible I mean when I first started doing it everybody would come to me like thank you like that was unbelievable I'm ready to go take care of other people now <laughs> and uh just to see its effect on my team, the <laughs> relief that these poor people have when they know that we can have a functional conversation without my eyeballs exploding all over the wall or my, <laughs> my blood pressure uh, raising has just been incredible. It's made the restaurant so much better and so much uh, healthier. And damn, I'm lucky. Well... Sean Brock. On that note, I don't know how much farther we can go with that. It is time for the underwear questions. There actually aren't underwear <laughs> questions, but we have arrived at the lightning <laughs> round, which as frequent listeners to the Eater Upsell know, is the time when we ask you pretty quick questions, but they're not actually really lightning-ish. Um, and today's guest question asker is the editor of Eater Charleston, Aaron Perkins. Aaron, welcome to the Eater Upsell. I love Aaron Perkins. I love feeding Aaron. She's delightful. She has the best hair. She does have good hair. She's really She good likes hair. cheeseburgers the way I like cheeseburgers. What's the way you like cheeseburgers? A lot every day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Erin, now that we have sufficiently embarrassed you on air, what's your first question for Sean Brock? Hi, Sean. This is Erin Perkins, the editor of Eater Charleston, and I have some lightning round questions for you. What is the one dish that you haven't mastered? One dish that I haven't mastered. Wow. So... I'm not sure I'll ever master it, but it's it's shrimp and grits. I mean, what a 
besides my mom's chicken and dumplings, that's pretty obvious. There's like, a lot there's, of psychology wrapped up in that. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I, you know, I'll chase that forever. But shrimp and grits, what an interesting thing. And I've, I mean, I, I've, I've, I bet I've cooked 2,000 versions of shrimp and grits. And I'm chasing the final one. <laughs> you know, I'm chasing the one that when it's right, I'll know it and I'll stop. What's the impossible thing there? Is it the texture of the grits and everything else? Every single tiny little minuscule detail from when the corn was milled, how the corn was grown, what variety the corn is, how it's cooked with modern technology, how it's heated up, how it's taken care of, how it's held, where the shrimp come from, how the shrimp are handled from the water to the easy part, which is cooking. (laughs) (laughs) Cooking is the easy part. It's an endless, endless <laughs> field of study, it sounds like. It's so much you know? fun. <laughs> All right, Aaron, what's your next question? What is your favorite snack on a long flight? My favorite snack on a long flight? I'm pretty predictable. I usually have three to six Slim Jims in my bag at all time. Slim <laughs> really? <for> real? <laughs> when I was a little kid, I used to buy them by the box. I was, my dad would buy them for me and it just made me so happy. So that's like a, a way for me to stay sort of centered and grounded. It's that nostalgia of the Slim Jim. Important Slim Jim question. <laughs> what is the ideal length? They come in a number of different <laughs> lengths, right? There's the short ones that are kind of like. They but, can't make them long enough for me. Because they make the super, like they're yeah. so long that they're like flopping over. They can't make them long enough for me because I never want that to end. But here's my one gripe with Slim Jims. I can never open the damn thing. They're so slippery. <laughs> well, the packet never tears. I mean, I get it's, it's you're ruining a beautiful moment. I just want Wait, so what the <laughs> hell is a Slim Jim? It's not just beef jerky, it's like a beef jerky tube. Slim Jim is hillbilly mm-hmm. charcuterie. It's so good. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> Slim delicious. Jim is just redneck charcuterie. I if anybody <laughs> listening has not tried a Slim Jim, seriously, like I, I Sean Brock will say this. Like, don't listen to me. I'm just a dumb writer. But, like, Sean, tell our listeners that they need to go get a Slim Jim. Yeah, and there are lots. You have to go get a Slim Jim and make sure that you carefully choose the flavor based on your personality. I, I like I like um, mild these days. <laughs> this seems consistent with the rest of the yeah, art. Right. <laughs> Snap into a mild mild, Slim Jim. Mild is is classic, right? I like the the moderation Slim Jim. Yeah. Yeah. Slim Jim. Snap into that Slim Jim in moderation. (laughs) All things. They're freaking great, though. Like, they're simultaneously really greasy and really desiccated. It's like a pepperoni. It's like a cousin to the pepperoni, (laughs) essentially. Distant, distant cousin. (laughs) It's the redneck uncle... Of the pepperoni. <laughs> They're so good. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, that's the... And you eat them on airplanes. They're very aromatic. Yeah. I don't care about that stuff anymore. Because right. you don't care about other people, as we've been <laughs> discussing. <laughs> All right, uh, Aaron, do we have another question uh, from okay. Mr. Sean Brock here? <laughs> yeah. What kitchen chore do you dislike the most? What kitchen chore do I dislike the most? Writing a schedule. Oh. oh my God! Oh, it's what I had two goals as a chef. Like I'm gonna work so hard so that someday I don't have to write the schedule, and I don't have to take inventory at the end of the month. It's just 
it just rips your soul from you. But the executive chef kind of has to write the schedule, right? It's like the only person yeah. that knows all the moving parts. Exactly. That's why I'm open in so many places. So I don't have to do that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it's all just an elaborate ploy to avoid responsibility. <laughs> okay, Aaron, what's your next question? What TV show are you binging on right now? Well, up until 2014, I never watched TV, um, ever, ever, ever. And then I broke my knee and had to take time off work. So I bought the biggest TV I could find. Nice. <laughs> and binge watched TV for like three months straight. It was so amazing. <laughs> it, was, it was incredible. Um, I really like The Americans. I really like House of Cards. Uh, I wish Adi was here. She's the TV guru. Adi is my girlfriend, and she's very, very connected to the world of TV. <laughs> I just stopped watching. TV is still in, in, in play in your life. You still watch TV now. You didn't yeah. just throw away the big screen. I really like Chef's you... Table. I really like Mind of a Chef. Um, and I love documentaries. All right. I like that the, like, the... The fiction that you like to watch is about America falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> Reality. <laughs> right. Real life stuff. <laughs> With very attractive actors playing all the roles. <laughs> um, okay, Aaron, do you have more questions for Sean? Describe your perfect day of eating. My perfect day of eating. Yeah. Hmm. All right. That's easy. Um, I would make breakfast for myself and Audie. What's for breakfast? Um, it's always pretty darn simple. It's always a pork product. <laughs> eggs, however, we're feeling. I usually have some caviar around. We like to dump on the eggs sometimes. Oh, yeah, it's pretty simple. Caviar in the morning? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's simple. Average and, um, American breakfast And right hash there. browns, hash browns, hash browns. What's ha your hash, hash brown style? Um, <laughs> well, if we're talking Waffle House languages, scattered, covered, smothered, chunked. But I, you know, to me, it has to be like a, a frozen product that's like perfectly glued together and steamed just right. And you just pan fry it in some bacon fat. That's wonderful. Or if you don't have that, you take a skillet, you put it on the stove, you get it medium hot, put some bacon fat in there, and then you hold your cheese grater over the pan and you grate the potato right into the pan. Mm. That's really good. Like all the all starchy the liquid and everything. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So cool. And then for lunch, I love Arnold's in Nashville. Um, that place just makes me feel like really um, happy. I mean, it's just it's I've, I've it's very few restaurants that make me as happy as that place does. And for dinner. You know what? I would stop for a snack in between, and I would um, stop by Rodney Scott's, get a handful of cracklins and barbecue, and then I would go sit down and eat 16 courses of McCready's. I love it. I love it. <laughs> that sounds like one hell of a day. I yeah. Think, I think you, Start you, the day you, in Nashville, end the day in Charleston. Well. Mm -hmm. I do oh, that perfect. quite often, actually. <laughs> right. Well, it sounds like you are living your dream on so many levels. I am. It's amazing. I'm yeah. so thankful. And I'm so grateful for all the people that have uh, taken care of me my whole life, my whole career. Well, Sean Brock, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us here on The Eater Upsell. Yeah, thank you, Chef. Um, if 
our listeners want to find out more about you, your book Heritage is available wherever books are sold. You have restaurants in like 11 billion different <laughs> southern cities and you're on Twitter and Instagram. Yes. They can find you everywhere and they can go to McCrady's and get relaxed. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Hey. Next week on The Eater Upsell, we continue our inadvertent Southern Gentleman series with John T. Edge, the head of the Southern Foodways Alliance and author of the new book, The Potlicker Papers, a historiographic look at the way food and the South have intersected in recent history. That sounds like dry academic stuff, but I promise this is one of the coolest conversations Greg and I have had. Oh, John T. is such a cool guy. Yeah. The, the coolest cat. Looks great in seersucker, too. It's really... <laughs> yes. Too bad this is an audio show. But join us next week when we're talking with John T. Edge. Make sure you're subscribed. Give us a five-star ratings in the Apple Podcast Store. And tell your friends and loved ones to subscribe to the Eater Upsell so that we can be in your ears every Monday morning. Okay, credits. The Eater Upsell is recorded at Vox Media Studios in Manhattan and Los Angeles. Your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and Greg Morabito, that other guy whose voice you hear on every episode. Our executive producer is Maureen Giannone. Our associate producer and editor is Daniel Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our studio team is Miles Ewell, Alex Ulreich, Paige Bethman, and Stephanie Broderick. And our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. But of course, of all of these people, the one who makes all of this possible, without whom none of this could exist, without whom we would just wither and die, is you, dear listener. You. Thank you for listening to what we do here, and thank you for being your beautiful self.